I'm very thankful that we get to study John's gospel together week in and week out. Uh, it, it is really formative for me um, to be in the text during the week, and I hope formative for you to be in the text on Sundays. And let me just encourage you, if you're not currently involved in a small group, uh, I've really been enjoying our discussions in small group about the sermons. Um, my group meets on Wednesday nights, and we go back through some of the questions that are uh, given to us on Sundays and go through the sermon and the text, and um, it's really helpful in making application and drawing out principles and discussing those things, and so let me just encourage you, uh, it's another way to uh, place your heart under the Word of God in fellowship with others. And it's very, very beneficial for uh, your engagement with the text of Scripture and uh, learning of Christ and making application to your own life. So a little plug for small groups there, uh, as they are very, very important in our spiritual lives um, here at Woodhaven. Uh, John 13, obviously, is where we're going to be. I know some of you aren't uh, parents of small children right now, maybe you're grandparents of small children, but if you have ever parented small children, or if you're in the thick of that right now, or if you've seen someone else parent small children, you understand the importance of the five-minute warning announcement. It's a thing. When the kids are playing or they're otherwise engaged, maybe they're in the backyard, maybe they're on the playground, the five-minute warning announcement is vital. It is necessary in order to avoid a complete meltdown. And even the five-minute warning announcement at times cannot help you completely avoid it. It just gives you a fighter's chance at avoiding the absolute meltdown. You have to prepare your children for the moment when you actually say, we are done now. It is time to eat dinner. We are getting in the car and going home. We are leaving the wonders of the playground to go apparently to some horrible place in their minds. You have to say something like this, five more minutes, and then we're going to get into the car and leave. You have to prepare them for the change by giving them a new set of expectations. That's how it works with kids. It's been a while since I've been a small child, but trying to get into the head of a four-year-old while I was thinking about this, I think their brains must go something like this. When they're playing, this will never, ever end. It will never get dark out here. I will never need food. I will never need a bathroom break. My parents don't need sleep. I will be going up and down this slide forever. That's the, the train of thought I think that they get into. They're so enjoying it, but a change is coming for them. Now, as an adult, hopefully, part of maturity is learning to manage your expectations, but we really do live life a lot based on what we expect will happen in the future. And in some ways, the chapters that we have jumped into last week and that we're going to continue through John 13 to 17, in some ways, these are the five-minute warning announcement for Jesus's disciples. What he's doing here is it's his last discussion with them. He is preparing them. He's setting expectations for them that there's going to be a, an absolutely earth-shattering, monumental change for them, and everything is going to be different. He's no longer going to be with them. 
They'll be on their own and they will take what they've learned. They'll take all the responsibility that he's given to them and they will have to put it into practice and utilize it and carry the message of the gospel forward. So they need to know what to expect. They need to know quite clearly what's going to happen. And a large portion of this discourse that he gives with them on this last night that he's with them is going to prepare them. I want you to look in our text today, just quickly down at verse 19. Look what Jesus says there. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am, and it says he in the text here, but you could really translate that I am. Look forward, flip a page forward to chapter 14 in verse 29. Jesus says this, and now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Again, flip forward to chapter 16 and verse 4. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. It's a five-minute warning announcement here. Now, Jesus began this whole meeting. You can go back to chapter 13. He began this. We studied it last week in the upper room, the night of the Passover, by giving them a very clear picture of what he was going to do for them. He washed their feet, and that was a symbol of the cleansing and the way he was going to serve them by giving of himself as a servant and sacrifice for them and bring them forgiveness of sins and cleansing. Now, in the rest of chapter 13, all the way to the end of this chapter, he's going to prepare them and he's going to give them some expectations for the future. And he's going to do this, you could see it right there in verse 19, so that their faith will increase, so that their confidence in him will grow. That goes right along with John's whole purpose for this gospel. And for you and I, as we read Jesus give these expectations, and then we see them fulfilled later on. The goal is that our faith in him as the I am will grow as well. That's what John is trying to accomplish here in this passage as he gives expectations. So this morning in John 13, verses 18 to 38, we're going to see five expectations for the death of Christ that should increase our faith. That's the goal. That's the mission this morning. Five expectations for the death of Christ that should increase our faith. They wanted to, Jesus wanted to increase the faith of the disciples. And it's the same goal that John has for us as we read about these expectations. And the first one of those, you can see it on the screen there, is the expectation of fulfillment. Now, this is laced throughout the whole narrative of Christ's death, as we'll see as we get into it. But he sets the table and the expectation for that here in verses 18 through 20. Look with me at verse 18. Following right on the heels of what he's just told them in verse 17 in that whole passage, look what he says here. Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So 
Let's make a connection back to our previous passage. In verse 17, he's told them they will be blessed, right? They will live the good life. They will live well as they were intended to live if they will act according to the example of servanthood, of sacrificial service that he gave for them. The way to live well is to give your life away in the service of other people. And he says, you know that principle now. You will live well if you act on it and if you do it. But Jesus knows that not all of them will follow through on that. Some of them, one of them in particular, will act out of self-preservation and self-centeredness and selfish ambition. Not all of them are going to act in loving service at all. Why? Look at verse 18 again. I'm not speaking of all of you, right? And now he's going to get into the specifics of who is going to betray him in the next few verses. But he says something interesting in verse 18 here. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Why does Jesus say it that way? What does he mean? Is he talking about his election of the disciples to salvation? Actually not here. What he's saying is, I have chosen all 12 of you and I've done it with the specific knowledge that one of you will betray me. I've intentionally put Judas in the group. Jesus has already addressed this back in John chapter 6. Look here on the screen. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Why in the world would Jesus do this? put someone on his inner circle, on his group of 12 disciples, whom he knows is going to betray him. The rest of verse 18. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus understands that his life and his death are the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations and promises and patterns. The whole thing points to him. Now he obviously here quotes an Old Testament scripture. Anytime there's a quote of an Old Testament scripture, I hope you've learned, we want to go back, we want to look at it, and we want to understand why and how Jesus's life fulfills that Old Testament expectation or promise. And so where's this quote from? It's from Psalm 41. So I want you to turn in your Bible back to Psalm 41 with me. Hold your finger in John 13 if you can. But let's go back to Psalm 41. Now, if you notice at the beginning of this psalm, it's one of those psalms that is identifying the author. It says at the beginning, and this was in the original Hebrew, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So we're to understand that this psalm was written about David or by David and was written about his experience. Now, let me just give you a summary up front of the main point of this psalm. What David is saying here is that he experienced suffering at the hands of his enemies as a righteous sufferer. He did not see himself as deserving the mockery, the persecution that they gave to him. In fact, quite the opposite. He didn't deserve it, and yet he suffered as a righteous man. That's the theme of this psalm. So let me show you this. Let's look at verse 5, and we'll read through verse 8. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? 
And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. But obviously his enemies want him dead, but it's not just his enemies here. And that's where this gets really crazy in the life of David. Look at verse 9. This is the one Jesus quotes from. It goes well beyond his enemies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Most people think that what David is referring to here is his experience of his son, Absalom, rebelling against him, and then his very close, very trusted counselor, Ahithophel, turns against him as well. And so, yes, David has enemies who mock him and want him dead, but beyond that, he's got a son and a friend who want him dead. And even in his suffering, David expects God's vindication of him. Look at verse Verses 10 through 12. And this explains why David expects God's vindication of him. Verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. Raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. In verse 12, here's why David expects God to vindicate him. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. So David says, I'm a man of integrity. I honor the Lord with my life. And so this psalm is presenting David as a righteous sufferer, someone who is persecuted by his enemies and by his friends, even though he is a man of integrity. Now, Jesus Follow with me here. Jesus quotes this passage because, of course, he is the son of David. He's the descendant of David. He's the true king that comes in the Davidic line. And so Jesus quotes this because he's saying, David is a precursor to me. He is a type of who I am, of the Messiah. This is typology. David's life set out these patterns, these types these experiences, that then Jesus comes along, repeats those experiences, except here's the difference. Anytime you go from an Old Testament type, antitype to the type, to to Jesus, the fulfillment of it, there's an escalation. Jesus becomes greater. It's a, a more dramatic experience of that pattern, of that type. So how do you see that escalation here? Let me show you this. And I think this helps us to get to the real heart of Christ's suffering and death and betrayal at the hands of one that was close to him. Look at verse 4 in Psalm 41. As for me, David is talking here, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Interesting. David sees himself as a righteous sufferer. He sees himself as a man of integrity, but he's not perfect. He understands that he has sinned and that even though he sinned, he's going to suffer as a righteous man, but he knows that he's still a sinner. But when you get to Jesus, that's not the case, is it? 
There's an escalation here because Jesus suffers as a man who is without blame, completely without blame. He has perfect and complete integrity. He's never done anything wrong at all. There's no reason for him to have enemies. There's no reason for a close friend to betray him. And yet he is still betrayed in the ultimate manner by one who is close to him. And Jesus did all of this in order to fulfill Scripture and to build the faith of his disciples. Look at verse 19, back in John 13 again. I am telling you this now about this fulfillment of Scripture before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Now, Judas is going to betray Jesus. We'll learn more about this in our second expectation But there's an encouragement here, even as he announces that someone close to him will betray him. There's an encouragement in verse 20 to the disciples. Look there. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. What a magnificent promise for the disciples to consider. That as they receive Jesus and then are sent by him, that they will be in relationship with him. And yet, the betrayal is still going to happen, and that's the next expectation that he gives here. So fulfillment of Scripture, and again, we'll see that throughout the whole narrative of Christ's death, but now he gets into the specifics of the betrayal here. Look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. That's the same word that's used when he saw Lazarus in the tomb. He was troubled in his spirit, emotionally, as a human in turmoil. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He makes it absolutely explicit to them here. It will fulfill scripture, and one of you who's sitting here with me will betray me. And the disciples do not know what to do with this. Look at verse 22. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. Well, it's a good thing Peter's there, right? You can always count on Peter to get things moving along. Look at verses 23 and 24. No one knows what to do. Peter steps in. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Now, it's interesting. Let's pause for a moment here and look at verse 23. It's interesting here that this disciple is designated the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the first time in this gospel that you read that designation, and some of you are probably familiar with this, but we think this is the author of the gospel, the apostle John. Why would John use this designation of himself as he wrote his gospel? Well, it's not, I don't think, because he thought of himself as more loved than the other disciples. He was sort of a a level up from them. It's probably because he didn't want to promote himself. He didn't want to use his own name in his gospel. He wanted to draw attention away from himself. But I also think, and I like the idea, that John used this designation for himself because he had never gotten over the fact that the Lord of the universe loved him. 
that reality just hit him and it stuck with him and he carried it with him as the greatest part of his life, as the greatest identity that he could ever have. And it's interesting here that as he writes that, that he's the disciple whom Jesus loved, that he is reclining at Jesus's side here. This is the same language that is used of Jesus himself in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So think about what we just read in verse 20. About the one who receives Jesus, receives the Father, and Jesus is at the Father's side. And so when you receive Jesus, you are in close, intimate relationship, personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ ushers us into that family relationship. And I think John understood that. And so he gets as close to Jesus as possible here. So, because he's so close and because Peter asks him to, look at verse 25. So, that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, of course, they would have been reclining at the table with their feet out. That disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answers him, and I want to make sure you understand that the answer he gives to him is probably pretty quiet. He doesn't announce this to everyone. And it's probably quiet because of what we're going to see later in verses 28 to 30. The other disciples apparently did not hear these words in verse 26. But let's read verse 26. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So Jesus answers to John here and describes what he's about to do. And before we get to verses 28 to 30, I want to explain to you the implications of this offer of this morsel of bread. This indicates to us that Jesus considered Judas a friend. I mean, we just read in Psalm 41 that someone close to David, a friend, a trusted counselor, betrayed him. And at this point in the relationship, Jesus still considers Judas to be a friend. And it's reasonable to think that this offer of friendship here is a final offer. Of course, Jesus knows what's going on in Judas's heart. But it's reasonable to think here that this is a final offer for Judas to turn from what is developing and has developed in his heart and to turn from the path that he's on and to not betray Jesus. It's also reasonable to think that Jesus did not get up and walk this morsel over to Judas. So what does that tell us? It tells us that at the Last Supper, Judas was really close to Jesus. In fact, if John was on his right side, Judas may have been on his left side, which was the seat of honor. And Jesus, in grace and in kindness and in friendship, offers this mortal morsel of bread to Judas. One last act of grace to him. But of course, it doesn't impact Judas at all. Look at verse 27. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. The fact that Satan enters into him means it's basically over at this point. 
thorough possession and he is sold over to darkness. This is a moment where judgment has come to him through his rejection of the offer of grace. Listen to how D.A. Carson describes this. I love this. And that final act of love becomes with a terrible immediacy, the decisive moment or movement of judgment. At this moment, we are witnessing the climax of that action of sifting, of separation, of judgment, which has been the central theme in John's account of the public ministry of Jesus. So the final gesture of affection precipitates the final surrender of Judas to the power of darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has neither understood it nor mastered it. The grace, the offer of grace, becomes the moment of judgment because of Judas's rejection of that offer of grace. Verses 28 to 30 show us why this was not a public announcement that was made. Look at verses 28 to 30. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him, why he told him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. It was common during Passover for people to give money to the poor, even late at night, during the middle of the night. They kept the temple open so that you could give money. So the guys thought that this was what was happening when Jesus told him this. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. And Jesus has told us over and over again in this gospel that he is the light of the world and that his ministry brings light into the world. And it's clear from this that this is a turning point. And now his public ministry is over. It's done. The night has fallen. John 12. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So his public ministry is now over. And in the end of this public ministry, an event is going to happen that is going to realize our next expectation. His death will be through betrayal in fulfillment of Scripture. And ultimately, it will bring about glorification. This is one of the results that happens. Look at verses 31 and 32 here. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now, you can see the immediacy of this. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You can see a couple of times the immediacy of this, and you can see a whole bunch of times the word glorify all over the place. The Father is glorifying the Son. The Son is glorifying the Father, and it's going to happen immediately through what? What event is going to bring about this honoring, lifting up, glorification of the Father and the Son? It's going to happen through the betrayal of Judas, which leads to the death of Christ. Both the Father and the Son are going to be glorified through the death of Christ. 
One author called this the the ultimate moment of self-divine self-disclosure. What is a disclosure? Well, sometimes you'll have a disclosure document, right? If you're signing a contract or if you're buying a house, and a disclosure document is when you put all your cards on the table, when you make everything clear. You make sure the other party can see everything that they need to see. And so in the death of Christ, God puts all his cards on the table. The character of God is on full display. He makes it known to everyone. He shines a light on who he is so that everybody can see. And when he shines a light on who he is, he is lifted up and honored and glorified. Hebrews 2.9. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We looked at Philippians 2, the first part of it last week, a bit, but this is how it ends. After he gives himself up to death, even a degrading death on a cross, therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name that he receives, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So here's the question we have to ponder as we think about this mutual glorification. In what ways does the horrible and degrading death of Jesus Christ on the cross bring honor and glory to God the Father and God the Son? How does it put the beautiful character of God in lights for everybody to see when Jesus dies in this way? A bloody and shameful death on a cross. Well, there are a million ways that this honors both of them, but I want to narrow in on one aspect of this to help you see this. Both the Father and the Son are glorified when you and I see the situation that we were rescued from. Our hearts give them glory as we understand what we were rescued from through Christ's death on the cross. I'm going to give you five results of sin, five ways in which sin has impacted us, and then I'm going to give you five provisions of the cross that glorify Christ and glorify the Father that match those five results of sin. These are taken from an article called The Glory of Christ's Victorious Death. All of these are meant to put his character on display. So first of all, these will go quickly. Sin has caused and given us a sentence of guilt in the courtroom of God's justice. You and I are born guilty before God. The author of that article said this, this is real guilt. It's not made up. It's not imagined. That is legal culpability and liability to God's punishment on account of our sin. That is the situation that you and I are born into. And if you're apart from Christ this morning, you are still in that situation. Guilty, liable to God's punishment for sin. We deserve it. And we deserve to have this verdict of guilty hanging around our necks. But God's glory, his character, 
His honor is revealed in the death of Christ because his sacrifice removes this penalty of guilt from us. We are no longer responsible. We are no longer viewed as guilty. The legal status of guilt has been taken away from you if you're in Christ this morning. You are pardoned for your sins. You're no longer guilty and you don't have to wallow in guilt anymore. You don't have to go through your day feeling shameful and guilty because of sin because all of that has been removed. And when you see that, it puts the character of God on display. He is a God who pardons and forgives. Second, sin has placed you and I under the wrath of God. His intense hatred of sin. But God's glory is revealed as Christ, his death, satisfies the wrath, propitiates is the biblical word, and satisfies the wrath of God. It's gone from us. He provides a just payment for our sin, and so God's wrath is turned aside. It is quenched. It is satisfied on your behalf. Third, sin has alienated us from God. Human beings were created in order to live in the presence of God. That is our best good. That is the most wonderful thing. We were designed to live in the presence of God, and yet sin has taken us out of his presence, has removed us from the greatest possible good that we could have, a relationship with God, knowledge of him. Now we're born into darkness. We don't know him, and what we know about him, we reject. Now we're his enemies because of sin. But God is glorified when his enemies become his friends and when his enemies become his children through the death of Christ. Through Christ's death, we are reconciled. Now our greatest good is possible. We are put into a relationship with the God of the universe. Fourth, sin puts us in bondage and slavery. Our desires are bound in handcuffs, in shackles. Our desires are only aimed in one direction. They are aimed at what will destroy us and dominate us. And God is glorified and seen as beautiful when through the death of Christ, we have been freed from those shackles. Our desires can now be aimed at what is good and what is holy and what is just. We're freed from the tyranny of sin. We're given over into the service of of Christ. Fifth, sin has put us under the control of the powers of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. And God is glorified when Christ wins the victory over sin and death and transfers us from the kingdom of darkness. He rescues us from that kingdom and brings us into his kingdom of light and love. Those are five ways that God's character, Christ's character is put on display, that he discloses himself through the death of Christ. And you could spend all week meditating on those. All the things that God has done through the work of Christ on the cross. And let me encourage you, okay? If you want to be changed in your daily life, if you want to no longer desire sin, but desire holiness if you want your affections and your loves and your desires to change, meditate on these things that I've just described to you. 
Think about them. Go to them. Ponder them. Consider the glory of Christ. Here's what John Owen wrote. It is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. It is by faith that we grow to love Christ. So if we desire strong faith and powerful love, which give us rest, peace, and satisfaction, we must seek them by diligently beholding the glory of Christ by faith. In this duty, I desire to live and die beholding the glory of Christ by faith, which happens as you see what he has done in his word. And it's as we behold his glory in the cross that our next expectation will grow. Oops, the last two are up there. A little disclosure in advance, but let's look at the fourth one, 33 through 35. Jesus reminds them here, after talking about his glory, of his coming departure. Look at verse 33. Little children, Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So he tells them once again, reminds them that he's going somewhere they can't come, he's going to die, and now he gives them a a new commandment in light of this. Look at 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, you might be reading that and think, well, that's not a new commandment. I've seen that before in the Old Testament. We're supposed to love one another. Jesus has said this in the Gospels before. This is not new. When Jesus says it is a new commandment, what he's talking about is the way in which the circumstances have changed now for you as you pursue obedience to this commandment. The circumstances have changed because now the new covenant is going to be inaugurated. And the new covenant brings about forgiveness of sins. And because your sins are forgiven, now you have a new heart. You have different desires. That was the whole problem in the Old Testament with Israel. They didn't have a new heart. They didn't have new desires. And Jesus says, through the new covenant, now I give you a commandment that you can actually follow through on because of the work that I've done and because the Spirit is going to live inside of you. The old covenant can never give you this. And so now we have the example of Christ's death that motivates us to sacrificial love. Look what he says in verse 34. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We have his example. We have the reality of a new heart through forgiveness of sins. And all of that makes this a new commandment. Situation has changed. And this new commandment and these new set of circumstances are so significant that this commandment to love one another must become the defining feature of Christ's followers. Look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This must be the primary characteristic by which his people are known. 
What are you known for? What defines you? What are we known for? It must be this. Love, sacrificial service for the good of other people. That's the defining feature of this community. Let's move on to our final expectation there. And you can see it on the screen. Interestingly enough, failure. Verses 36 to 38. The disciples here have heard Jesus say again in verse 33 that he's going away and they can't follow him. They're starting to, I think, pick up on some of the language of departure and they are having trouble with it. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter insists that he would like to follow him now. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus responds to this by telling him to expect that failures will come. Look at verse 38. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter had the best of intentions here, right? I don't think he's lying about what's in his heart. I think he genuinely thought that he was ready to lay his life down. I mean, think about what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. This guy draws a sword out when there's a whole legion of Roman troops around and tries to rescue Jesus by chopping a guy's ear off. I mean, he's not without gusto here. He's not without good intentions. And yet, this guy, when the situation is right, unexpectedly to him, he will melt at the question of a servant girl and he will deny Jesus three times. And Jesus is telling him to prepare himself for that reality. Let's be honest as we think about this this morning. Honest with ourselves. You and I can expect failure this week. Maybe not on the level of Peter here in this situation, but you can expect to fail this week. You're going to sin. You're going to mess up. You won't be perfect. You will live as a pagan at times, as if you don't know Christ. You won't love Jesus well. But here's the beauty of this, and the beauty of this expectation here, right? Jesus knows about this failure in advance. He knows about this failure when he washes Peter's feet, when he tells Peter that he's clean already. He knows about this failure when he goes to the cross. In fact, this is the reason why he goes to the cross, because Peter is going to monumentally fall on his face. That's why Jesus goes to the cross. And the beauty of the Gospel of John is what happens at the very end of the Gospel. In chapter 21, in a shocking display of grace and kindness, Jesus restores Peter and all is forgiven. That's what happens to failure because of the cross. When the cross takes place, we can expect failure, but we can also fully expect that when we fail as children of God, we can be and are forgiven and we are restored to Christ and his love for us. 
And it's the same love that sent him to the cross. That love stays fixed on you as his child, even in the midst of your failure. And so you respond to that failure by recognizing it, by confessing it, and not by running away from him in guilt and shame, but by running to him to receive the forgiveness and once again recognize the love and forgiveness that you have in Christ. That's an expectation that you can bank on this week. You can prepare yourself for this this week. You're going to mess up. You're going to fail. But when you do, even if you fall flat on your face, don't wallow in it. Don't stay in the guilt. Don't hide it. Confess it. Run into the arms of a loving Savior. Forsake the sin. Go to the cross and receive once again the feeling and the reality of forgiveness and the, the recognition of the relationship with, that you have with him and the, the fact that his love has not faltered for one moment. He knew it in advance. He knew it while it was happening. And he knows it as forgiveness is becoming real to you. So, all of these five expectations here. Jesus is preparing the disciples for what's coming. And he's doing this so that their confidence in him and their faith in him will be built up. And I, I pray that the same thing will happen in your life and for you and whatever happens to you this coming week. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for this passage, for the expectations that have been set here and what they ultimately lead to. Your, Lord Jesus, your death on the cross, the sacrifice that you've made and the reality that that has brought about in our lives. We thank you for the forgiveness, the cleansing that we have in Christ. We thank you for the fact that even though we fail so regularly, we are still in your love. Your love has never faltered and never will because of who you are. We thank you for this. Apply this in our lives and help us to live it out. It's in Christ's name we pray.